for me, I wasn't, wasn't looking for, you know, the middle-aged white guy in the suburbs that's happy with AA. I was looking for people that are like a little outside of that, that don't feel like they have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. They don't identify with AA. Some of them don't even want to use the word alcoholic, which is, you know, fine if they don't. And so um, the more people I met, the more they said, like, I would go to meetings, but. Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Accredited Life Coach. Each week, we will provide you a safe space of guidance, empathy, accountability, and support, helping you to find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the whole concept of paying it forward? That's exactly what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message to the universe, to people who need to hear the lessons and the tools from the Together Sober podcast. Hit subscribe. Welcome back to another episode of the Together Sober podcast, where our mission every single week is to create survival guides out of our collective stories in an effort to bring you effortless and lasting sobriety. Sometimes in the sobriety and recovery world, I feel like I'm always like, I wish they had this, or I wish there was a resource that did this. I feel like I don't really fit into what's out there. And the reason I'm excited for the conversation today, among other reasons, is because our guest today is going to be presenting you with a tool and a resource that I feel fits exactly that. Something that is customized to you, who you are, what you're all about, and it's really cool and unique and exciting. But before we get into all of that, I'm excited to introduce you to Sonia Callen. Sonia started drinking daily when she started a business. It was a work hard, play hard philosophy. That's something that's very familiar to me as well. She was functioning professionally at such an extreme high level that no one even considered that she could have a problem. The business was exploding and the better it did, the more she drank. And as a result, the more her mental health deteriorated. Now, Sonia received an offer to sell her business and it was kind of one of those like offers she couldn't refuse, um, she couldn't turn it down. But she knew that she would start drinking more with her days less busy, and she didn't know where or how that would end. So she quit. She white-knuckled with great difficulty. Sonia had a list of things she had wanted to do, and one by one, she checked them off. She went to school for photography, took writing classes and jewelry making classes. She started exercising, eating healthy, making art, and writing about her sobriety. Sonia calls it doing all the things, right? We hear that a lot. Today, sober since 2017, Sonia is the founder of Everbloom, which provides small group recovery meetings where members are matched into groups based on what they are struggling with. Since then, she has also become a recovery coach and has dedicated her life to making a difference with social impact, investing and volunteering with the incarcerated formerly incarcerated and victims of sex trafficking. And now Sonia hopes to create her biggest impact by leveraging the power of peer support to create community for those on their recovery journey. Sonia believes that even though the specifics of everyone's journey are unique, there's a common thread of shared human experience. She wants to share her story today so that people can see that what you, that when you least believe it, the resilience of the human spirit is an undeniable force that is in all of us. Sonia, you are incredible. This is incredible. Welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you, Louise. I'm so happy to be here. You're so welcome. You are just like one of these powerhouse women. I know it. You were probably like came out of the womb that way. It sounds like. (laughs) Um, But I would, I know we have a lot to chat about today, but I would love to give our listeners just some context. Uh, We'd love to just learn a little bit about you, a little bit 
maybe about your drinking history and what that kind of road to recovery and discovery was like for you. Um, and then we'll really get into it. So um, the floor is yours. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I did come out of the womb with certain expectations. I, I think I'm, you know, my parents are Indian immigrants and, you know, there's only three possible career choices. So a doctor, a dentist, a pharmacist, and I just picked the one in the middle and I became an orthodontist. So yeah, there was not a lot of options for me, but um, also Indian people, I grew up around a lot of drinking. The men drink pretty heavily in my culture and the women don't, but the men are just disasters. These are not high functioning alcoholics. These are like falling down drunk, like getting into fights. And so that's sort of what I saw growing up. It didn't look super appealing. Um, and then as time went on, I just had this like super deep seated anxiety and insecurity. I think I probably about being different in like an all white school. I was like the only Indian kid and my parents were really into assimilating. So it wasn't like I even knew that much about my culture to even share it. So people would say like, why do you look different? And I didn't really know. And so um, that went on for a really long time. I just didn't fit in. I didn't understand like Western sports. I mean, I didn't understand Eastern sports, not like I understood <laughs> cricket, but yeah. But, you know, I just didn't, didn't fit in by a long shot. And so I started smoking cigarettes probably when I was 13 and that worked. That was like, oh, this feels really good. Um, and then that sort of does the same thing as alcohol where it stops working and it actually is the problem. Yeah. And then I probably started drinking when I was 15. And so the feeling was like, we have arrived, yeah. like we got it. Like I, all the anxiety melted away. All of a sudden I could just fit in wherever I wanted. My personality became just fluid and I could just adapt to different groups of people so much more easily. And that's all I wanted to do. And then, you know, I went to um, a pretty formal Canadian university. And so alcohol was had a totally different place there. It was like pre-dinner sherry reception, mm. post-dinner port wine reception. And that was like a level of sophistication I had never seen. And so it also kind of normalized daily drinking or event drinking for me. So yeah, that's just how I moved through the world. I think I'm like a epic code switcher. Mm -hmm. And so I can just kind of code switch, go in between different groups of people. And so I did that and I binge drank throughout my twenties. Um, but I was in school, so it was binge drinking. It was like, I wouldn't study. I would study for a few weeks then I would binge drink and I would study. And yeah, like you said, I didn't start drinking um, daily until I started a business. And that was like full on like 2010s, like hustle culture, full on like, you know, people are sleeping in their founders are sleeping in their offices, they're eating one meal a day. And so you kind of felt like you were part of this like movement of creating these big companies. And it didn't start out like that. But within a year or two, when um, I went from one orthodontic office to two, and then eventually within six years went to seven. Um, that's when it started to feel big. Um, and it felt like a runaway train, to be honest. Like I couldn't keep up with hiring. I couldn't keep up with the number of patients that were flooding in. And I think that, and I think part of the reason is I had really huge imposter syndrome. So I kind of never believed the success was happening. And so I was like, well, why do we need to hire five more orthodontists? Like who has 10 orthodontists working for them, right? Like not right. me. And so I think that that I was always sort of like behind the growth of the business. And so that created for someone like me, just a huge amount of anxiety. And, and also like how I grew up, like I wasn't financially stable. I think the amount of money moving around this business was like very frightening to me. It wasn't, um, it didn't feel as good as one would think it feels. Mm -hmm. It felt like, what if this all comes crashing down? And so, yeah, my mental health was a wreck. My drinking was, I was a wreck. I was drinking every night. I was hungover every day. And then I did get an offer to sell. And it was like, I don't know. I don't even know where I would be if it hadn't happened. 
Um, I had no real plan to quit drinking. I knew I had a problem for a while. And so, yeah, I just decided like this, I have to start this new chapter of my life. I just can't keep going like this. And I didn't have a formal plan. Like I didn't have a pathway and I just, yeah, I did all the things and I had faith that like all the things would lead me somewhere. Yeah. And so I said, if I keep doing this, if I keep writing and I keep making art, my art was in galleries and people are looking at it. People have feedback and I keep like, just keep going. Something is going to present itself like the next opportunity for what I want to do. And um, yeah. And so I, I started volunteering a lot. And that was like when I really said, okay, I think the path is going to be recovery because you know, in prisons, like the majority of people are there for yeah. some sort of substance abuse or substance, you know, drug related crime. And so I would go in and I could talk about my experience mm-hmm. and basically say, like, I went, I went to women's prisons and men's, but, you know, say to the women, like, look at me, like I was addicted. I was one bad night away from where you yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I can do it, you can do it right? Like there's no special resources I have that, you know, made it possible. Addiction's addiction. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter. And so I I knew then that this was like, okay, I have a story. I want to learn how to communicate it better. Um, and so I just kept writing more and my writing was getting like little essays, like like sometimes they would be like cute essays about yeah. like, you know, something about my drinking that, you know, like a, an event that I got particularly messed up at and like what that led to kind of thing. And so, yeah. um, yeah, they were getting published and I was like, this is great. And like life was like, I was bumping along just like five years of sobriety. Like I got super close to my family. Like I have three nieces that are amazing. I have two sister-in-laws that are amazing and we went on vacation and we're like, it was just, it was like, wow, this is what it's about. I was splitting my time between New York city and Pennsylvania. And so it's kind of like in the same way that you said you arrived when you started drinking, it's like, now here you you've arrived in sobriety. Like here we are. (laughs) That's clicking. I think, (laughs) yeah. And I think also like now that you say, I think that when, because I was like a healthcare provider, yeah. I don't think I would have been comfortable sharing my story while I was still treating patients. Yeah. And it's just not, it's like kind of incongruous, right? With you don't want your dentist. You feel like a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. You feel like a hypocrite. And so um I think part of that like opened me up. I think like decades of having to be super professional and super like, you know, kind of guard your you know, what your life outside of work is like. And so, yeah, that probably had something to do with it. And so I just, I don't know if you feel this way. Like I, I don't think I changed like fundamentally. I think that my like real value system was like Mm -hmm. hidden, like Mm -hmm. in the alcohol. Like I just had to like dust it off. Like, I think that, you know, being ambitious, like financially and, you know, wanting nice things. I don't, I think that that was covering up who I really was. Yeah. Yeah. And so the volunteering, especially in the writing and just like interacting with people, it just made me realize, oh, this is what it's about. Yeah. I don't care how big my house is. And yeah. I love what you said um, at the beginning of just, you said, I, I started doing these things. I didn't know where they were leading. I didn't have a plan. Right. But in doing these quote unquote things, which for you was creating art, creating writing, volunteering, you know, service, that is how, how you discover what is going to unfold in front of you. And that is how you kind of all of a sudden, like to me, sometimes the most powerful thing with that type of a journey is it's, it's not necessarily about where you're going, which is important, but it's also about looking back in the rear view mirror and seeing how far you've come. And so like you describing your journey, I'm just picturing you again, immersing yourself in all these, like this beautiful creative work and personal development work, and then kind of looking backwards at your life as this struggling, anxious, you know, multi storefront business owner Um, and, and just seeing that stark difference simply by just going outside of your comfort zone and like trying on a few things for size. 
Yeah. And like for the first time, you're right. Like without a goal, without an end Mm -hmm. goal. And so it just, and so I, that was freeing to me to not Mm -hmm. have um, a goal and to not not have this, like I have to achieve a certain amount of success or I have to achieve this. And, um, but I will say my husband at the time, I remember him being like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm just trying things out. It's going to come to me. And he was like, these are hobbies. These are not Uh, like, let's get to it. Let's start the next business. Like it's time. And I, and I would get this pit in my stomach. And I literally, I think I have some sort of, I have a stress response to people saying like, Hey, Dr. K. Like I literally, like, I never introduce myself now as, you know, as that, because I, it's like, I heard that times a day in a very aggressive way. Like I have a problem. Um, So I didn't know exactly how to communicate it with him, that I wasn't going to start like the next, you know, Invisalign company or whatever it is he had in mind. Like I was somehow had really developed like this interest in making a social impact. And I started angel investing um, to help close like the gender gap in like venture financing. And so something had just shifted where I knew I had enough. Mm. and I was good and he wasn't. And so for a few years, we sort of straddled it where, you know, he was doing crypto and, you know, I was doing what I was doing and, um, and people thought it was cute, right? They thought, oh, like she keeps him grounded, you know? And, and he was the kind of guy that if I wasn't there, he which is what he's probably doing now is like, would be choppering to the Hamptons on the weekends. Mm -hmm. That's that guy. You know what I mean? Like the white, (laughs) white Patagonia vest. Yeah, that's him. So, and just really into that startup culture. It is like white male dominated pro culture. And so it was fun. We'd go out with friends and like, we'd have such different things to talk about. And, um, and I kind of thought that was great. And you know, it turns out he didn't. And so, yeah, he had just been languishing for about five years, um, not sure what to do next. And and I knew he blamed me a little bit for it because I was not on board. Mm-hmm. But I was on board with like, hey, do whatever you want and I will help. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to be your co-founder. Yeah. yeah. Again. It's not my path. That's not my journey. What have your parents said or what, I guess, at the time that you were parting ways with your career, your orthodontic career and the business um, as somebody coming from that American Indian culture of breaking away from the career you're supposed to have, what was that like sharing that with them? And Um, I think that like the sort of size of the deal was really um, something they could brag about to their friends and that's all they cared about. Right. So First, it was like Sonia's an orthodontist. And then it was like, oh, Sonia did this deal with this company. And so I think that, yeah, that that held them off for a couple mm-hmm. of years from from being like, so what's, what are you going to do next? What's so next? they never really, yeah. yeah, they were, yeah, they were actually pretty good about it. So <laughs> yeah, cool. but yeah, it was interesting though, that um, like you can live with somebody and not really see it, right? Like going in that direction. So that's yeah. pretty much- and yeah, I ask so- too, because I think so many times we, even though you're a grown adult, right? By the time you're selling your business, you're married, like, you, you know, you're out of the house clearly, but somehow we still just resort back to that childhood need to impress and live up to those expectations, you know, that were placed upon us as a younger child. And um, for me, one of the foundational pieces of me growing up was I was raised in a really strict religious household and a big piece of that was no alcohol and obviously (sighs) how that went but (laughs) but it's interesting now coming like full circle I'm 40 now and um there's still a piece of me that's like oh yeah I've got my parents approval again right like as a 40 year old (laughs) no I think Actually, now that you say it, it's the first time I've thought about it. I think the reason I was able to feel so relaxed was because I knew they were not going to bug me yeah. again, right? So they were kind of like like satiated by the sale of the business. So totally. that's interesting because if they had been nagging me, I don't know how I would have, I would have had a lot more anxiety about not really pursuing the next yeah. big thing. 
Yeah. And it was, I actually, I'm glad you said anxiety because one of the things I picked up in the earlier bit of your story that I wanted to just kind of pull apart a little bit was you mentioned that as a young child, before you started using, uh, that there were some elements of your upbringing that you experienced some anxiety, not fitting in kind of, you know, feeling like an outsider and that kind of thing. And when you started using, you used the phrase, I have arrived and you started just feeling really comfortable in your skin. And I thought it was interesting that like, I guess that was like 15 year old version of Sonia. Right. Um, but that same version kind of came out again when you started drinking daily with the growth of the business, like that anxiety and that unknown. And like, I'm, you said, like I, I was in over my head, like that kind of feeling. And it's, it's almost like your usage of alcohol has been consistent from the beginning. Um, yes. In a way versus we see a lot of, I'm sure you've seen this too in, in your coaching and with Everbloom, like a lot of, it starts off as a party drug. It starts off as fun and then kind of transitions into something else. So I thought that was kind yeah. of just interesting to pull out of your story. Um, that's, that's a little bit unique, but I'm sure so many listeners can relate to as well. Yeah, no, I had actually hadn't thought about, yeah, it's not something that was like it. I mean, progression is one thing, but it, it really was what it was from day one. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was, and there was not a lot of progression. I was trying to get the same level of so, messed up. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and it was that anxiety and yeah, being, I think, yeah, just being able to be someone else almost. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if you felt this way, but then when I got sober, I had a lot of work to do. There were like, there were decades of unprocessed <laughs> emotions and trauma that, um, that I had just kind of let slide. And yeah. so you know, luckily for me, I got hit with a fresh new trauma when my husband, um, yeah, decided that the problem uh, was me and he woke up one day and left after 18 years. And oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I knew he had been struggling with what he wanted to do, but I had no idea he was struggling with the relationship Oh wow! until that morning. And so, yeah, we had dinner the night before we walked our dogs. And then, um, and we talked a lot about, you know, what he was going through. She's like, I don't know what I want to do. I just know I feel like a little bit trapped and like, I don't know if it's because of the pandemic stuff. And, and so, yeah. And so that was, um, that was like the next chapter of my sobriety journey started mm-hmm. that day that he left. So not only are you rediscovering yourself going from like being a chameleon and, you know, just being whoever you need to be in addiction. Um, and now you're already rediscovering yourself. Now your husband leaves and now you're rediscovering yourself as a single human as well. After 18 years, what were, I want to know what some of the hardest parts were about that. If you're open to sharing and then I'm, I'm curious how you pulled yourself and have worked to pull yourself specifically. Cause I know that's an ongoing process. Um, to find a, find your identity and, and really kind of stand on solid ground again. Yeah, it's, it was, I I mean, I thought, you know, my childhood was rough. I thought getting sober was rough. I had nothing on this. This was a pain that was a level. I, well, one, I think it was the shock, right. Of it was like, I mean, if you had asked me a week before, I would have said, no way we're going to be together forever a week before not even, yeah, we weren't arguing. It wasn't like something had shifted. And so, um, yeah. And so I, I remember the day after he left, I, you know, barely slept and barely ate. So I did all the things you're not supposed to do when you're sober. Right. I was hungry. I was angry. I was lonely and I was tired. And, you know, I also was isolating, but I I reached out a bit to my sister-in-laws, but honestly, I was so ashamed that my perfect marriage um, that was supposed to be sort of like a role model for like my nieces and, you know, and it was gone. And I looked, I thought like an idiot, right? Like for not knowing. And so, yeah, I went for a walk. I remember that morning on the Hudson and I thought like, why am I sober? Like, what's the point? Like that morning that he left the things he did say was, you know, he said, you're, you're really introverted. You don't feel the need to like expand your social circle. You're so happy with like your nieces and your family that you're not as interested in meeting new people. And, 
and finally he was like, you know, you're too happy with your hobbies and I just, I need more. And so when I'm thinking about like, why am I sober? It's like, so the changes I made as a result of being sober seem like they ended the marriage and I could not believe it. Like I went, it was so hard to reconcile. I probably left it alone for like a couple of months, that idea of why he left and just kind of let myself be upset and not, you know, but I still was like, what's the point of being sober? I have so much pain and so much anxiety. I know I would feel better if I drank Mm -hmm. temporarily for sure. Yeah. Uh, Like I had no break from that pain and I'd never been in that situation sober. Yeah. The five years before that had been pretty good. Yeah. Things happen. Like, you know, there were tough moments, but nothing of this level and this level, I only knew how to drink at it. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the toughest was staying sober the first few months. And so I remember I went back to my apartment and I logged on to like a meeting that my friend had told me about. It was like not 12 step, but it's like a great like community meeting and um, there were like 200 people on the Zoom. And I thought, this is great. I don't want to talk. I don't want to show yeah. my, my puffy face. And I'm just going to sit here and listen. And I did that for like a month or two. Um, and it was amazing. It gave me some, it gave me a bit of a schedule. Mm-hmm. And it started the morning knowing I was going to stay sober that day yeah. because most of the people on these calls are early sobriety. Mm. And I thought, what would they do to have five years that I'm just like going to throw away? Yeah. I, I can't, like, I owe it to them to stay sober today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. And then, you know, time went on and I just thought I wasn't feeling that much better in life. Like it was a rough many months. And yeah. so I knew it was time to start you know, sharing at meetings, but I wasn't going to share in that environment because I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's like you raise your hand and mm-hmm. you vent and then you recede and then the next person goes. Yes. So there's no yep. like conversation. There's no like feedback on what you just said. It's really just a, like a monologue. Yeah. Whereas you're kind of seeking like a, almost like a, that group therapeutic experience where you're getting feedback and you're getting empathy and you're getting, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I had it right. I had a support system. I had my two sister-in-laws. Um, they both had been divorced from my brother who's an alcoholic. Um, I had my teenage nieces. I had a friend going through a divorce. I have incredible neighbors that, you know, it wouldn't let me be alone that much. And I had what you think would be enough, but I didn't have anyone sober Mm -hmm. that was close to me that had been through something like this. And so my sister-in-laws too, like, I'm not, I don't want, I don't want to worry them. Like, Hey, I'm thinking about drinking. Right. And, or my my neighbors, it's not something. And so I needed someone I could talk to about, this is part of my sober journey. Yeah. I thought my sober journey was not over, but I thought this part was over. You thought you were smooth sailing. Yeah. (laughs) hundred percent. I was like checking meetings out here and there. Like every, you know, every couple of months I'd be like, oh, I'm going to do a bunch of meetings. And I would would check out AA meetings and I would, you know, I was just kind of like floating around like a little silver butterfly. Like I'm fine. And yeah. So I realized that's really what I needed and that it was sort of eating me up, not talking about this part mm-hmm. of what I was going through. Mm-hmm. So is this kind of the inception of Everbloom? Like the basically yeah. what you felt you were lacking in your real wor- world experience. Okay. So tell us, tell us kind of how yeah. this was created. And cause I feel like I, I we're at the precipice now with your story and it's <laughs> almost like this was created. Um, and in so many ways so many things are created right to solve a personal problem in a way and you just kind of expand on that so um tell us yeah so um so I you know I was back and forth between visiting my sister-in-laws um in Toronto and coming back to Pennsylvania and I was alone and so they were worried you know they're like I don't really love the idea of you being alone like why don't you go do something um like take a vacation and so I you know, took everything in me. And I was like, okay, I'll go to Costa Rica, right? They have all these retreats and I'll just go to Costa Rica. And from like the second, like 
I got on the flight, I was like, I have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> like, I haven't traveled alone in 20 years. I'm sitting on this plane, just like crying. Like, yeah. what am I doing? How am I on vacation by myself? And I get there and I'm checking in by myself and I get into my little like hut by myself and I go to dinner alone and I am like, no, this yeah. is crazy. What have I done? And I have like six days ahead of me. So probably by like the third day, I like crawl out of bed and I'm like, and I'm doing the things, I'm going to the retreat activities, yeah. but I am like, this sucks. Like, you're why like, you eat, pray, love, but not ready for eat, pray, love. Basically. <laughs> they, yeah, no, they were expecting I would come back like, <laughs> with some hot Costa Rican guy or some, I don't know what they were thinking. Or like, I would eat healthy for like a week and something would change. I don't know what I, I whatever it was, it didn't happen. But I thought, I'm like, what is it going to take to get over this? Like, this is month, I think at that point, I was like month three or four. And I was feeling almost as bad as I had the day he left. And so I thought, like, what is it? What is it? You have this incredible, you're so lucky. You have this support system. You don't have any financial issues without him. Like, what's your problem? And um, I thought, yeah, I think what's missing is the sober piece, right? Because my anxiety is so high. It's not only sadness. I was sad for sure. But so I just started like mapping it. I started looking, first of all, I started like searching. I was like, is there anything with like a small group I could talk to um, of people that are going through something? It doesn't have to be the same thing, but something, um, some sort of life transition. And I really couldn't find anything. I mean, I didn't necessarily want to start a business right? I didn't want to like reinvent the wheel. If it, if it already existed, I would have probably hopped on yeah. to it. Um, and so I, I couldn't see it. And so I just kind of like started mapping it out. I took my journal because I didn't feel like journaling. And I just kind of made a big circle with like the word sober in the middle. And then I like made these spokes coming out it kind of like a sunshine. And I said, what are the things that you've struggled with that would have been nice to have somebody, yeah. you know, like that was going through the same thing. I said, okay, so everyone is sober, trying to get sober and you're struggling with some sort of life transition, like, um, you know, empty nesting, divorce. Yes. And then I thought, yeah, I've struggled with self-esteem, imposter syndrome. That would have been nice, like to have somebody to talk to about that. Um, you know, I've struggled with job burnout. Yeah. It would have been nice to talk. Mm -hmm. So I thought this could go on forever. Like, yeah. and people I think would like it. And we're not talking like demographic matching. We're talking like, like experience matching. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And so that's how it came up. And then I, you know, I wouldn't say I started to feel a ton better, but I started just working on it. Like a couple of hours a day, um, I joined like a business accelerator in New York. So they were kind of like, even though I had started a business, I, I kind of just wanted that structure yeah. of like, here, two hours a day, they do this, two hours a day, do this. And so you're accountable I, to, yeah, totally. Yeah. And you're following a process. And so I did that until I just kept going. And like every week I could work on it a little bit more. Like I felt a little bit better mm -hmm. and like I started sleeping a little bit more and then I could work on it more. And then, um, yeah. And, and you know, it was amazing. Parts of the accelerator are interview any potential customers. So interview as many people as humanly possible. And so I interviewed people you would not believe. I interviewed a guy cleaning his gun in his garage and he was in AA. I interviewed multiple witches and I thought witches. And I said, would you go to a sober witches group? And they were like, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so many different people. And for me, I wasn't, wasn't looking for, you know, the middle-aged white guy in the suburbs that's happy with AA. I was looking for people that are like a little outside mm -hmm. of that, that mm -hmm. don't feel like they have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. They don't identify with AA. Some of them don't even want to use the word alcoholic, which is, you know, fine if they don't. And so, yeah. Um, the more people I met, the more they said, like, I would go to meetings, but. Right. I would go to meetings, but I drink on Fridays. 
like we need a place for people like that. Right. (laughs) Or I would go to meetings, but I've been sober for 10 years and Mm. I'm not going to go to AA anymore. And it's like, yeah, but still, if you think about it, the wisdom you have, Mm -hmm. if you look at sort of like a a support group, like a piggy bank, right? So if I had been from year one to five, like depositing in this piggy bank, right? By the time this happened to me, I would have had a support group to draw from. I could have started taking money out of the piggy bank. And so, so I thought there's a place too, for like long-term sobriety here. It doesn't have to just be um, people figuring out their relationship with alcohol. And so, yeah, the interviews showed me there was something there. Mm -hmm. And my mentor said, there's something here. There is something here. Like you have to, let's, let's go to the next step. Let's get signups. And so, yeah, before Christmas, I started, um, I said, if this were to happen, would you sign up? Yep. And I had like hundreds of oh. signups. And I was like, oh my, I remember at Christmas, like looking at my phone and just every time I was like, oh my God, oh my oh, God. Wow. Um, and so, yeah. And I launched in January, um, the full thing. And it just, it's amazing. Oh Congratulations. This Thanks. is really, really cool. And I'm just excited. I feel like there's a home for everybody with Everbloom. And, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things that we do on the podcast here is to present as many tools, as many resources as possible because of that exact reason. Like we want to make sure that every witch, every gun cleaner, every, (laughs) just using your two examples, right. To be, to make it lighthearted, but like, honestly, I mean, there, this is not cookie cutter you know, recovery and finding sobriety, there's no one size fits all solution. We know this yet. What I see in Everbloom is a model that does so much work on the back end to ensure that like individuals are feeling heard, seen, connected so that the work on the front end can essentially really create that lasting, you know, and, and effortless change because I do wonder, Sonia, like if you had this tool specifically, or if you had been, you know, doing this work specifically, um, in the first five years of your sobriety, how would your transition into, you know, becoming a single woman, how would that have looked? Because you, you said specifically, I still had, when you were in Costa Rica, I still had so much anxiety built up. So you, you were still that same little girl at 15 years Mm -hmm. old with the anxiety that picked up the alcohol to begin with and you hadn't found a way to cope or a way to deal with that yet. And, you know, thank goodness you decided to, again, just like lean into your skills and lean into your passion rather than you could have very easily in Costa Rica made that a very boozy vacation (laughs) if you wanted to. Um, I thought about it. (laughs) Sure. So I, I think this is incredible. Tell us, tell us a little bit about just kind of the structure of Everbloom. Like if I'm somebody right now that as a listener that is really interested to, to learn more, like, okay, how do I find it? Where do I get involved? Like, what does it feel like in a meeting? Are they kind of all those nuts and bolts of it? If you want to run, run through that. Yeah. So it is, it's, it is fairly customized and personalized. So if you, you want to check out a meeting, I think everyone should check it out before they sign up because it's mm-hmm. not for everyone, right? Like this is not a passive meeting. This isn't yeah. like a podcast essentially, right? Yeah. It's like, you got to get in there yeah. to get something out of it. And so, you know, um, you go to joineverbloom.com, sign up for a meeting just to check it out. And you'll see, um, you know, a group of probably 15-ish women or men, and we have a lot of women, I'm just going to put it mm-hmm. that way, um, but which is an interesting thing. I didn't expect the, the percentage of women that we have, but um, yeah, and so we start with, you know, some sort, I do like a reading or a topic, something that, you know, usually I pick it from like what we were talking about the last meeting, and then people just share and they, in and they are having a conversation. So they share. And then somebody on the bottom right of the screen will be like, you know what? I went through that last week mm. and I think you could try this. And like, they hold up books that they're reading um, and they are talking to each other. They're having such a profound connection to each other. And 
what I do or what a coach, any other coach would do is just guide it, like guide the conversation. Like, so it's not going off the rails. Right. Yeah. And so, cause you know how these conversations can go off yep. the rails. Yes. People start talking about their DUI and then somebody else starts talking about, you know, and then I need to get a breathalyzer and it's like, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. No, no. Rain let's it just, in. Rain it in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, let's talk about what, why you got the DUI. Let's talk about why. Um, so yes, yeah, so I just sort of guide it a little bit and, um, and it's amazing. And I don't, I mean, it's like, it, it's all, it, it almost seemed fake. I was on a podcast and um, the host said, you know, I'd like to come to a meeting before I, you know, before we do the episode, um, before I release the episode. And I said, yeah, sure. Come on. And I was just like, oh my God. Right. Mm-hmm. And during the meeting, people were like, Sonia, I just want to tell you like how much you've changed my life. And, and I was like, I had to tell her, I'm like, this isn't fake. I Stop not it. <laughs> And people were just like, I just feel like so seen and so heard. And I was like, guys, what is going on? (laughs) And yeah, it just does feel like that. And yeah, I can see how much they're getting out of it. And I can see how much they're changing week to week. But I think a big part of it, and I wouldn't necessarily call it a pivot, but kind of an awareness for me was the gray area drinking. Mm. And so a huge percentage of our people are not comfortable being called alcoholics or addicts. Um, They plan to try drinking again at some point in their life. And so they can't go to AA. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I think um, that's been super special for me Mm. to realize that these people didn't have somewhere to go until Everbloom. Yeah, they're kind of like lost in purgatory um, with, you know, are you a drinker or are you not? Like, and again, like it's not black and white. Um, this is why the term gray area drinker exists. I love this idea of, you know, there's so much value in sharing your story. We know that. But to have, again, a safe, structured space where not only are you sharing a piece of your story, but you're receiving feedback on it, Um, right? Like we say the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think that's an AA like slogan, right? And that's true. And you do get that. I I do firmly believe that you get that with AA and there's a lot of value there, but to have it be reciprocal. I think that's the piece that really differentiates Everbloom is the reciprocity of the conversation. And that is unique. Um, and I think like what I see happening there is like, if you want to expedite your recovery, (laughs) you know, you're providing that like almost like expedited experience because you're again, providing that safe space where you can receive feedback and thank you for filling that hole in the market because, uh, you. you know, I, I, I think it's brilliant. I really do. We, we can get that in therapy, right? One-on-one with a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, I think the dynamic of that relationship is very different than a community of individuals who are also sitting in your seat, you know, um, as, as the addict or as the person who wants to make a change in their relationship to alcohol. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the word people would use, the members would use most is like intimate, right? Mm-hmm. It is an intimate thing. And they're saying things to each other that I maybe wouldn't think to say. One, someone was talking about, oh, I've only been seven days. And we're like, it's not only seven days. Mm-hmm. And one of the other people piped up and, and said, you're a warrior. Like mm-hmm. you are, you have this. And I don't know any other meeting where you get that kind of feedback yeah. other than, yeah, like one-on-one coaching. Um, I don't know where you can get that kind of feedback. And so it's amazing. Like I get really emotional. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how you customize the groups. So, you know, one of the biggest kind of differentiators of Everbloom is that idea that if, if to use your example of like going through a life change or going through a divorce or something like that, how do you get paired or assigned to a group or how does that process work for you? 
Yeah. So um, people fill out a survey and it has some pretty, you know, interesting questions. And then there's, you know, a spot where you can just write whatever you want to write about what's going on in your life. And so I read all of those Mm -hmm. and I usually even respond and I say, Hey, I read, you know, I read what you wrote and I think I have the perfect group for you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all these people are struggling with the same thing. Many of these people have tried to quit multiple times. And so that we're talking about variations of a early sobriety group. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about people who are trying to quit, have quit. So yeah, that we have a few of those, which are amazing. Yeah. And then what came up, which was super interesting. And I just added it to the survey was I found that in my first early sobriety group, almost half of the people were healthcare workers. Hmm. And maybe half of those were mental health care workers. Mm. And I, like, I try to stay really tuned into what's happening too. That's another way to, I try to customize it. So I'm like, what is going on? Then I thought, I'm a healthcare provider. Yeah. I was a healthcare provider when I was an orthodontist and I was struggling and I didn't have anywhere to go. One, there's confidentiality issues, yeah. anonymity. I don't want to end up at a 200 person meeting. My patient could be there. Yep. Um, and so I was thought about it. And I said, okay, when these people get to a certain point, I'm just going to spin them off into a healthcare providers group. Cause there is something on top of the whole, like being resistant to getting help. There's something unique about working with people in that way yeah. that there's like a specific kind of stress that comes from it and a specific type of exhaustion. Um, and so, yeah, so that's sort of how it goes. Like the more people tell me about themselves, the easier it is to match them. Yeah. Um, if they don't tell me much, I do the surveys great. It says, you know, are you being challenged by job burnout, this, that. And so, but um, yeah, and even when you sign up for a free meeting, there's a little spot on the Calendly just saying like, is there anything else you want us to know? And I usually respond to those too and say, hey, I know you're just coming to check out a meeting, but this meeting that you're checking out would be your group because this is a group for you. Yeah. Wow. I'm curious. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Now, having put your heart and soul and have launched this project, where are you now in your recovery from your marriage and your relationship? It's not such a tough question. I feel like um, people want to hear like the full arc, like the redemption story. And it's not that black and white. And so, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, people expect that like, you should be doing a mate. Look, you turned your pain into this beautiful thing and that is healing. Yeah. And it is, but my marriage is still over, right. Of 18 years, like somebody I essentially grew up with, I was 23 something when we met Um, and so that piece is still really hard. It is hard. I think people, this is what people have asked me, like, are you grateful your marriage ended? And I, it's really hard to say that. I hope I get to that point where I say, yes, this was what, you know, needed to happen. I do think this is what I was meant to do. That that helps. And so, yeah. yeah, And I, I, yeah, I think I'm still, I, yeah, I'm still healing from the divorce. Um, but in general, every day is better. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. And I think, first of all, thank you just for being honest and open and vulnerable because that's just reality. Right. And I think, I think it would be sad in a way. 18 years of your life is, is most of your life. And I I would hope that we would all have gratitude for all aspects of our life, right? Like, even though it's interwoven, you know, I had 20 years of addiction, right? Hard drugs, drugs, you name it, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the whole thing. And it would be easy to say, oh, I I wish I could just wipe that slate clean, get rid of it. But it it doesn't work that way, right? Like it's, 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 the journey is all interwoven in our past experience. And so um, I really appreciate your answer, um, and transparency. And I, I'm sure that there will be pieces of you that are grateful for the present and the future that, that will be, but it's also, I think I, I love giving ourselves permission and I'm just speaking generally now, like permission to be grateful for our past, um, because we don't get sober or maintain recovery by hating who we are or dismissing a piece of our history. Right. Um, 
it, it's quite the opposite. Like we, we have to embrace it. I think in so many ways, I, I feel like I tried at the beginning, uh, to regret the marriage, mm-hmm. right? I tried. Yeah. I, I was like, I regret the, I regret the day I met you type thing. Um, you. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Like I rue the day. Um, and, but I noticed that it didn't in fact made me feel so much worse because it meant yeah. all my memories and everything meant didn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything. Exactly. And so I, I'm really, I will not, I'm not using for sure, not using the word regret, but I think it's the only way to really like keep your life whole. Like I can't like chop it up into pieces where, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, Sonia, I, I know we could go in so many directions, but I'm (laughs) I'm so grateful to a have met you, heard a piece of your story and just extending so much gratitude to you for really listening to the world, listening, getting your pulse on the ground and understanding um, the specific needs that the recovery world has and just like your badass self, just doing it and implementing it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Sonia, if people, I know we go to everbloom.com, but if people want to get in touch with you or start following you on social media, what's the best place to kind of find you? Yeah. So we're joineverbloom.com or join Everbloom or Everbloom on every social media. We okay. just went viral on TikTok a couple <laughs> weeks ago. I don't know how. I don't know. It doesn't even make any sense to me. Um, so yeah, it's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. We're either Everbloom or join Everbloom. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And we have all of the tags in the show notes. So you can just quickly click on them there. Sonia, just one last question. It's a question that I ask all of our guests who come onto the podcast, and I'm so curious to hear your answer. If you could create, and in a way you've already done this, but if you could could create one ruler law, it's hypothetical, we're going to assume that you create it and, and the world follows it, right? So if you could create one ruler law as it relates to recovery, sobriety, mental health addiction, what would that one rule or law be? I think it would be you must find one person and talk about it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a village. It doesn't just one person. Just say your truth, like say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it would be. I love that. And I think that stems so closely to your story of being a healthcare provider and having to keep so much of that story like inside. And only when you broke away from the business and started sharing your story, it's like just the world unfolded for you, which is amazing. Yeah. So awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. We're so grateful to you for being here and the work that you're doing in this community and in the sobriety space. And together, sober listeners, you will hear from us next week with another story. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.